brought to you by Prep Matters and the book, What Do You Say? How to Talk with Kids to Build Motivation, Stress Tolerance, and a Happy Home. Well, first of all, I think the bottom line to this is we need to know that resilience is something that every kid and grown up is going to need in today's uncertain world. And resilience mm. is something that is teachable. It is not one trait. It's not locked into DNA. And it's what creates to me a thriver. How important are standardized tests? Why isn't my child doing well in school? Do you need a high school diploma to apply to Harvard? Education is one of our most cherished institutions, but it can also be one of our most exasperating. And it's where almost all of our children go from toddlers learning their ABCs to critically thinking adults stepping out into the world. I talk with experts in helping teens and tweens navigate the transition to adulthood in order to bring you the tools you need to help grow resilient, self-driven, and successful young adults. I'm Ned Johnson, and this is Prep Talks. My guest today is Dr. Michelle Borba, an internationally renowned educator, award-winning author, and parenting child expert recognized for her solution-based strategies to strengthen children's character, resilience, and reduce peer cruelty. She offers realistic research-based advice called from a career working with over 1 million parents and educators worldwide. Dr. Borba is also recognized globally for her work in bullying and youth violence prevention. A sought-after motivational speaker, she has spoken in 19 countries and five continents and served as a consultant to hundreds of schools and corporations. Clients include Sesame Street, Harvard, U.S. Air Force Academy, and HRH, the Crown Prince of Abu Dhabi. Dr. Barbara is an NBC contributor who has appeared 150 times, wow, on the Today Show and many other shows on Fox, CNN, and other major networks. She's the award-winning author of 24, we think 25, but who's counting books, including Unselfie, Why Empathetic Kids Succeed in Our All About Me World. Her latest book out this year is Thrivers, Surprising Reasons Why Some Kids Struggle and Others Shine. She received a doctorate in educational psychology and counseling from the University of San Francisco, an MA in learning disabilities, and a BA from the University of Santa Clara. She lives in Palm Springs, California with her husband and has three grown sons and have two grandchildren now, yes, Charlie and Hazel. Charlie and Hazy. <laughs> I love it. Well, thank you so much for joining. It's a wonderful book, and I, and I look forward to sharing this uh, and a lot of your wisdom with folks. But before we do, so Michelle and I became friends through a group of parenting authors, and our mutual friend, Catherine Reynolds-Lewis, brought us all together when we all needed help and more connection at the start of this little adventure in pandemic living that we've been uh, exploring together. And so at some point, I think you were just then writing, finishing up writing Thrivers, right? And you said something to me like, if I ever say that I'm going to write another book, just shoot me. So tell us why you wrote this. If you're at 24, what, what pushed you on to 25 more, more than you two know, dozen? I only write books because I see I have this passion of finding an answer to a reason of or a problem. Mm. And the mm -hmm. problem was I kept hearing every school I would go to, teens telling me how empty they felt, despite mm. how loved they were, how much opportunities they had. They were clearly doing well in terms of GPA and rank and score. But as I'd sit down and talk to them over and over again, I kept coming up with this commonality that they all felt like they were running on empty. And I couldn't mm. figure out what it was until I started looking at the stats and I went, oh my gosh, 
all of the mental health stats are saying exactly what the kids are saying. They're aligned. And now it's let's dig deeper and figure out what's the cause and how to turn this around. Plus hmm. came thrivers on how to help kids survive and thrive. And particularly, I think Ned, what's really fascinating is I was writing this book prior to the pandemic. I finished right. and it came out three months into the pandemic. And what we do know is that a crisis only amplifies pre-existing issues. One in five American teens was gonna suffer from some kind of a mental health disorder prior to the pandemic. And now we're looking at the CDC warning us that it's now one in three. And we are also looking at an unprecedented rise in mental health issues of our kids. And this is the next wave of the problem. So we've got to reboot our parenting, reboot our education and realize mental health has got to be added to the plate. Well, it's, a, it's such a good point because there, you and I have both seen, you know, innumerable articles of, of concern about learning loss, learning loss, learning loss. And as I experience in my world, um, parents think, well, well, you know, but they're getting, but they're getting A's, you know, like is, is though wow. if you have A's, nothing else can possibly be wrong in the world. And so you, you, you really make a great point about talking about, um, um, strivers, you know, achieve, achieve, achieve versus thrivers. Can you just define both of those for us and, and, and point up, you know, why it matters so darn much? I, well, first of all, I think the bottom line to this is we need to know that resilience is something that every kid and grown up is going to need in today's uncertain world. And resilience hmm. is something that is teachable. It is not one trait. It's not locked into DNA. And it's what creates to me a thriver. That's a kid who says, I got it. You'll know that one based on all of the work you do. It's that agency, that self-efficacy that says, mommy's not going to do it for me and teacher's not going to rescue me. I got it. What does that do? It builds up this inner confidence. It's absolutely glorious. What I'm finding is that most kids are, are equal in terms of the, the bottom line, in terms of going off to an independent school or mm -hmm. higher level schools, but someplace along the line, it bottoms down to some kids strive, meaning they do it all, they try their best, but they don't get to the end. Where a thriver can buckle on through and say, I got it, keeps on going and feels the success accolade. And so what happens is actually there are seven traits that create a thriver. And each one of those then multiplies, becomes like this multiplier effect. So the confidence level goes up even more. Hmm. And and you made, if I may, I'll back up a half step in your, you introduced the, someone who was new to me of Emmy Werner oh. and talking about um, from not just a success perspective, as you, but also, as you mentioned, a mental health perspective where kids have the emotional resilience to, you know, to work hard, to, to struggle. They can get, you know, knocked on their duff, but, but still can, can get back up and not, not be sort of permanently pancaked by that experience. And, and if I recall, there's sort of two things that kids really need, according to Dr. Warner, I think it's Dr. to, uh, you know, in, in order to develop that resilience, right? Was it a close connection and these traits? Do I have that right? A close connection and these traits, but it also seems to be a close connection with any adult, the caring champion who refuses to give up on the child who loves mm. the child for who they are and is kind of the nurturer to that child's natural nature. But the second thing is that they have protective buffers. Someplace along the line, they have learned coping skills that help them endure. I am fascinated, and Emmy Warner to me is my, my go-to expert from years back. And then I, I went to University of California, Davis. I was a history major and all of a sudden discovered her work and flipped my entire work into psychology because 
to me, she is, first of all, her work isn't in most of our parenting books and has missed hmm. our education books, but she is the guru who discovered that resilience is teachable. Can you imagine that what she did way back when is identify a cohort of kids, hundreds of them who were overcoming extreme adversity. We're talking homelessness, poverty, sexual abuse. And she decides to study them with a team of social workers, psychologists, pediatricians, not just for one year, but for 50 years. 50 years. Oh, wow. What happens to these kids when they grow up? She's blown away herself because she discovers by the time that these kids become teens, one third of them, if they had the protective buffer or the caring champion, endured despite the adversity. So the first hmm. thing is, this thing is proven in science. We just haven't been given the, here's page 55 that says this is doable. Right. The second thing is it isn't just Emmy Warner. Once I realized, oh my gosh, she's proved it. I started digging deeper into resilience and found Norm Gormese found the same stuff. Michael Rudder found the same stuff. And Mastin, there's extraordinary scientific researchers who have been asking themselves the same question that every parent and educator right now has said, is there hope for the pandemic generation? And every one of them says, yes, there is, if we start thinking of thriving as something that is teachable and must be intentionally woven into our education, our schools, our homes, our community, we'll make a difference because who knows what else is coming down the pike if not a pandemic. Hmm. The seven character traits that you mentioned, do you want to, well, one, do you want to run us through them? And two, yes. you, you make the point that fortunately, um, it, you know, we'd lovely for all of us to have all of those, but we don't necessarily need to have all of them. Um, Cause you then talk about the multiplier effect of, of this one and that one, you know, it, which is such a wonderful concept um, rather than just being, what would it be a sum in mathematics? It's, it's multiplicate, multiplicative. Yeah. yeah. Okay, let's go. Let's break this down because the first sure. thing is if we're going to be teachers of resilience to our kids, we've got to have the buy-in that this is doable. Second mm -hmm. of all, we have to have the buy-in that it needs to have a new roadmap or a plan. And my goal is once the kids, I, I, I talked to about a hundred of them one-on-one -on -one for about an hour each. And they all said the same thing. Then I went to the research and I started looking at all the research, but I got myself a huge stack of post-it notes. What I decided to do was figure out the commonality in the science. What's the commonality of that study, that study, that study, and that study that are traits of resilience that are teachable? So my desk became a post-it note stack and only the top seven of all of the science step coming up. The second thing is I wanted those seven, here's a little footnote, be not only ones that taught really helped our kids become more resilient, but also mentally healthier. And because a teacher or a parent is going, but what about their, their classroom? What about their learning? The same seven also help kids become peak performers in a classroom. It isn't either or, mm. it's all. So starts with confidence, which is a child who has a strong sense of who I am, not what my parents or the system wants me to be. They know their strengths. And as a result, they're more likely to thrive because they use those strengths to thrive. The second one is empathy. We are a generation uh, that raising our kids who have really been more self-absorbed. Empathy levels have gone down nosedive, says the University of Michigan. But we're being raised in a really diverse society that they've got to be thinking we kids, not me kids. And the other thing is we now know that empathy is a superpower. It's one of the best stress reducers hmm. there is. That once you feel like you can connect with another person, Emmy Warner said social confidence is critical. Then what happens is you're more likely to thrive.
Third one, no big aha moment for anybody, but it's self-control. You have to have a coping strategy so that you can put kind of the brakes on your impulses. It's a very stressed out, uncertain kind of a world. Self-control is going to be critical. Integrity. I love the fact that this kept coming up because it doesn't make any difference that you have all these, these coping strategies or these resilient traits. Integrity is a strong moral compass. So when a child hits a moral uh, bump, they're able to not wiver and waver. They're going, I got this because here's what I stand for. The fifth one, aha, curiosity. The creative kid, not the Albert Einstein type, but a child who can think outside the box. So when the adversity or challenge comes, and it will, this kid doesn't raise a white flag. He goes, I'm gonna figure out a way around it or through it, a problem solver. Then comes perseverance. Notice that's number six. That's the kid mm -hmm. who has that inner uh, knowledge that if I just put the effort into it, I'll keep on going. That growth mindset, that grit, but it's in my heart that I got it. And the final one is optimism. I got hope around the world that I'm not a Pollyanna. I know that this is a tough time, but I'm going to be able yeah. to get through it because I have hope. So there's seven. All of them are love teachable. It. I love it. And, and I, I find myself... Um, making this little quibble a little bit of how much of it is um, sort of teachable in a sort of didactic way versus mm -hmm. parents and educators in a very thoughtful way, creating the opportunity for kids to learn these things. Because that's what, you know, the, the um, ACS school and, and, and all these yes. great educators you talked about where it isn't sort of dropping things on kids, but it's, it's it, um, allowing kids to learn these and you know from what they do themselves from watching us from our own words um and, and you know and, and and so much of this book is, seems to me is the how to of creating the environment by which kids can can oh, develop these man. traits and acquire yes, these skills yes, you know yes. You just nail it because there's there's three kind of things that we've got to keep in mind on how you create a resilient child. The first one we overlook is example. It's us. They got to start seeing people who also say, I got it. I can do it. I'll get through it. Example matters. Right now, uh, adults are behaving very, very badly. It's up to us to kind of put it up <laughs> to the plate. Example matters. The second one is explicit. We can be explicit in our lessons. We can be explicit in our language. We can just naturally weave it in, yes, but we can be explicit in what we talk about. The third one is experiences. Providing those experiences that allow the child to be able to realize I got it. I was fascinated with how many kids at one uh, school in Florida kept telling me that the most brilliant thing that they ever got to experience was senior year uh, during the summer. It was... The, actually, it was the beginning of the chapter on perseverance, where they went to mm -hmm. an adversity camp, a leadership camp. And more and more kids told me they walked in, all the boys say, we walked in as boys, we came out as men. I went, well, so what made the switch? They said, well, we weren't helicoptered. We realized we could do all of that stuff on our own. We could handle the challenge. We had a whole new mindset when we left. Every kid should be exposed to something like that. So experiences mm -hmm. do matter. You know, it made me think about our, our mutual friend, uh, Dr. Tina Payne Bryson, has that line that adversity plus support equals resilience, right? And adversity without support, it's trauma. And that's so yes. many of those, those, those kids whom, uh, whom Emmy Werner, you know, um, followed for all those years. Um, I'm thinking of uh, Steve Mayer and all the work with Learn Helplessness of, um, and the helicopter parenting, you know, for, for the human version of it, that adversity plus chronic saving becomes dependence right where you're exactly. just right 
Exactly. And I think that's the first thing is we love our children desperately. We want only right. the best for them. We certainly don't want them to fail. But by rescuing them, what we actually do is rob them of resilience. And if we really want to have a mindset of what do we want for our kids and how am I going to help my kid be the best they can be? It isn't just going to be the GPA and the test score that's going to make the difference. They have got mm -hmm. to be able to have that I did it kind of an, an attitude. And that's going to take not just a six o'clock time lesson. Okay, now we're going to talk about resilience. It's going to be a day-to-day -day moment when we weave this in and say, I'm going to step back a little bit. You got it, sweetie pie. It's watching our footwork, Ned, and realizing yeah, yeah, yeah. right this minute to go, if we're always there pulling the kid, it's not going to help. We need to start stepping back so that finally the child is pulling us. And when the child pulls us towards whatever it is, what yeah. we've then discovered is what their natural nature is, what is going to help them thrive. For instance, Emmy Warner said one of the simplest things that we overlook on helping kids thrive is they have hobbies hobbies mm -hmm. they use the hobby and it doesn't make any difference what it is but i don't care if it's knitting or woodwork or you know listening to music they use that during a time when they're stressed and it helps them decompress i asked dozens of kids what are your hobbies and they looked at me absolutely dumbfounded hobbies who's got time for a hobby oh so yeah i was struck by that part of your book i really you know it's interesting because in in the self-driven time we talk about reed larson who, who you know not in addition to you know these these refuge and this this touch point of these are skills that i have he made the point that kids develop um um intrinsic motivation, not through dutifully doing their homework, but through the passion and pursuit of pastimes. Because mm -hmm. if you're my teacher, I'll do what I think is necessary to get the grade, to get your approval. But unless I'm really, you know, manically driven, probably won't do much more where if it's my music or my art or my dance or, you know, fixing that engine that won't work, you know, you, you just go back at it over and over and over and over, you know, the, a lot of the growth mindset stuff that you talk about, you know, yeah. kids work hard, even when it's freaking hard. Well, yeah, and it helps you at the moment where you can kind of decompress and all of a sudden you've got that, that your stress levels go down and every college, I, I did this fascinating, you would have loved this conference, but it was 2,500 college counselors from wow. Ivy League schools across the U.S. They brought me in to talk about how to teach empathy to kids because they were so concerned prior to the pandemic that these kids were losing connection with one another nor did they have a coping strategy and they were running out of mental health needs. The number one time said Richard Davidson, you know, Cattison, a director of Harvard Medical <laughs> Health is number one time our kids are most likely to drop out prior to the pandemic and the freshman year, first semester of college. Hmm. They get their first B plus and they're devastated. So we, we send them thinking they're prepared when in reality they are in terms of one mindset. They're very mm -hmm. good test takers. They're great little thinkers, but we've got to now also build up their mental strength and aptitude. And that's what I'm trying to do in Thrivers is help you as a parent or an educator, look at those seven. I'll give you dozens of strategies you can use for heaven's yeah, sake, yeah. don't do them all or your kid will never let you read another book, but find a couple <laughs> of them that'll work for you and then keep doing them over and over and over and over in your family until the kid's got it, he can do it on his own, then add the next and the next and the next. And that's how we raise thrivers, intentional efforts. Well, and I, and I love that, you know, thinking that this uh, this podcast is dropping right at the, uh, the start of, uh, of 2022. And, you know, oftentimes we all reflect on on the year past and, and uh, goals for the future. And, and I think anyone who's a parent 
is likely to be thinking about, gosh, it'd be better if my kid, uh, and I think your point about let's not work on, you know, you, you don't try to lose weight, you know, quit smoking and, and, and take up exercise, you know, all, all at the same time. So same kind of thing here. If you, if we, if we know kids could use more strength in one of these character strengths, um, you have that wonderful character strength survey at the beginning of the, of the book. And I think that's a wonderful place to start pretty think, yeah, my kid's actually doing pretty well on that. This feels like, you know, an, an opportunity for growth, um, you know, and, and um, would you encourage um, folks doing that, you know, kind of behind closed doors or doing that with their kids, have their kids do it and do it separately? Well, how would you, how would you, but I, I'm sure it's age dependent, but how it would you is see folks using that? But it's also kid dependent and it's kid yeah. relationship dependent with the parent. The survey is what I realized that was really hitting me was that uh, we spend as parents, I'm not talking about you, Ned, I'm talking about the neighbors, more time <laughs> fixing our kids as opposed yeah. to working with their strengths and boosting them that way. So what I did mm. was develop a strength core assets survey where it's four pages and it's all mm -hmm. kinds of strengths that kids have from character strengths to um, learning styles to uh, get, uh, to getting along with other strengths to hobby strengths. Take a moment to just first review it. But second of all, for some cases, and I did this with Dr. Phil, uh, with a mom hmm. and a daughter, I had them go to separate separate rooms. You fill out what you think your daughter's going to say. You fill out what what your actual strengths are. And then what Dr. Phil did was put the survey on the screens and compared the two. And it was hmm. wonderful because the entire audience went, whoa, look how many mom missed. But my point was, yeah, but this is not just her. Look how many we miss because we too often look at the weakness as opposed to the asset. Kids will know their huh. strengths, and it's a fascinating conversational tool. I love that. You know, one of the things uh, in my cover, you know, I for for people who don't know, I do all this test prep, so I get to spend wow. a lot of one-on-one -on -one time with kids, and it, uh, frequently we'll be talking about this or that, and, and sort of know like, wow, you're really good at, you know, you seem to be really good at such and such, and they have this tendency to sort of poo-poo it or bat away. Oh, that, well, that's just that's just easy for everyone. It's like, well actually no it's easy for you you don't think it's a big deal because it's a natural strength where compared to yes. most people you're much much better at that and you know my writing partner bill stickshirt is a clinical neuropsychologist makes the point that that people tend to build lives on figuring out what it is that they're already kind of quote unquote naturally good at and then working harder and harder and harder to get better at that and so i love this core asset survey because <laughs> at least where i grew up it seems like you know how are you at school um okay um piano and violin soccer you know and it's this really narrow subset and, and as, as though you're not good at other things you know so i have this daughter who's a senior in high school and she had testing done years ago and was sort of off the charts with visual spatial reason, but I mean, off the charts, my favorite story, and I'm pretty good at this stuff. You know, I'm with geometry and all this stuff on tests. So compared to most people, I'm pretty good, but she's like a completely different order of magnitude. We had a front door and the door and the key was sticking on. I don't know, turns out I just need to put graphite in there, but I didn't know that in typical mail. I just start, I'd start taking the thing apart. So I take the whole thing apart. I eventually get there inside of this, you know, 1940s house, this box, the, the, the whole key assembly, right? The locking mechanism, I pull the thing out of the door and then I foolishly unscrew this thing. And it looks like the inside of a Swiss watch. And this piece goes spring and goes halfway across the room. And I'm sitting here 
with like what feels like 150 pieces. I have, have I taken a picture of this of how it went together? No effing idea. And it, it's like now it's like quarter of 11 at night. I can't lock my house. I'm like, oh my gosh. And I'm just frozen. And my daughter walks over, picks up this piece and she says, well, obviously it goes here. And mm -hmm. I just looked at her like, what? And I'm like, how did she say, well, I was like, no, 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 that is not obvious, right? And your point about with Dr. Phil, it's such a good one because we can have parents pushing kids towards working on the thing that they're, you know, what's that line? The, the worst thing you can do, the worst thing you do to a person is make them good at something they hate to do, as opposed to recognizing something that they're really naturally good at, but doesn't show up on a standardized test, isn't something they're studying in school, but they build a whole life around, right? Exactly. And you know what? It also confirms University of Chicago. When are we happiest? When are we happiest at work? When are we happiest in life? When do we work our hardest? When we're in a flow state and that is mm -hmm. involving what we're good at, but we're pushing our kids away from it. I had a similar thing when I was, I was in Dubai speaking to a large group and this dad walks up and says I am actually from Washington DC but I got to tell you what happened to me and it's exactly what you're saying my got two sons are different as night and day but my middle school kid all he talks about is wolves I got so tired of oh I love that story wolves, I thought oh my gosh what a weird kid talking about wolves he needs to become a lawyer like me and that's what I was pushing him into but this wolf stuff just got to the point where I finally decided I was going to set up an appointment where he was going to go to a park and talk to a park ranger. And I'm so glad I did because I sat there listening to him talk to the park ranger, politely mm. correcting him about stats about wolves. <laughs> he was so mind bogglingly brilliant that that was the moment that said, stop the law stuff. This kid is into biology. That's where his natural passion is. Why is it, Ned, that the majority of us, when we finally get a job, the first thing we're given when we're the big time adult is a book called Strength Finders. Identify what you're good mm -hmm. at, because that's mm -hmm. what's going to make you best as an employee. But we're not mm -hmm. doing this when our children are younger. It creates happiness, a flow state, and it's the first of the seven strengths yeah. to help our children develop the who you are. That's the other thing. Bill Damon tells us that by the time they get to Stanford, he's seeing the purposeless child. They're coming yep. in again empty, but they, they're very good with the test scores, but they don't know who they are. And as a result, that mental health begins to tank. So the first step on all of this is maybe your New Year's resolution. Great that we're doing this right now is to just maybe look at the core asset survey or take a three by five mm -hmm. card. And mm -hmm. maybe this week, Without your kids watching you, take a little nosedive, deeper look into what helps your kid thrive. When is he happiest? When is he more tenacious? When is he more engaged? When is he more eager? Those are the kinds of things that are helping us know that's what his natural passion is and then develop those. doesn't mean you're going to hmm. stop helping him with the math because he's struggling with it, but too often right. let that go dormant. And then all the child thinks about is the weakness areas because that's what we're pushing. And we overlook the good stuff that is a natural nature. Yeah. And I love that story about the boy and the, and the wolves, because it's that combination of the strength, the self-confidence and all that knowledge and the curiosity. And so it, it sure seems to me that, that all the lawyers who are maybe listening to this, that um, show a little curiosity in what your kids are naturally curious about. I guess is that well, the way we go about that? Well, notice there's your multiplier <laughs> effect. Yeah. Because if you put curiosity with self-confidence, 
You see, it isn't one trait that makes a difference on a child's life. And it's a rare person. I mean, it's a rare us that has seven. But if you look at two or three of these and you put them together, my aha moment when I was writing Thrivers is to realize it isn't one trait. It's a combination Mm. of any two or three together that create a multiplier effect and boost the odds of your child being able to thrive. What happens is that too many of these traits are lying dormant. So our children don't have that inner capacity to thrive and keep on going and develop the agency they need to say, I got it. Hmm. I'm going to jump around a little bit, if I may. I want to go back to talking about empathy. Um, I, you have so many good tips in here. We won't, won't list all of them, but, but before I highlight what I, what my favorite one was, can you talk about the three, t- your, the, your ABCs yes. of empathy and, yes. and kind of what they are and why this is so important in today's world? Number one, we got to realize that empathy is not a soft and fluffy skill. It's a transformational mm. skill. Harvard uh, Business Review has named it as the top employability factor. When you look at any of the 21st century skills, collaboration, communication, all of those face-to-face things in an AI world are going to be absolutely critical. But the big thing I'm discovering with parents is first, they don't realize that our kids are already come and arrived hardwired to care. We need to Hmm. cultivate it or it lies dormant. The second thing I see with parents is that they assume that only the child who, you know, watches Bambi and becomes a basket case and uh, because they're so upset (laughs) is the kid who has the empathy. Now that's one kind of empathy. I call it the ABCs of empathy. Mm. A is the affective empathy child. And you can see that kid. They, they kind of read Charlotte's Web and they're wiping the tears away. They're watching the TV on the tornado that came and you can see them being distressed. Their whole face radiates distress. Affective is one kind. But if your child isn't wiping the tears away, it doesn't mean that they don't have empathy. The second mm-hmm. kind is the C kind. It's cognitive. And I think that is the most critical kind right now in today's polarized world, because it's the child who tries to stop and a little more serious, understand where the other person is coming from. What a great concept. Please tell your child, you don't have to agree. Just listen to where the kid is coming from. Listen to where the adult is coming. Try to understand his point of view. You can respect it. You don't have to agree. But here's the final one that is the superpower. A is Mm. affective, C is cognitive, but the last kind of the triangle is B behavior. And that is, so what if you feel it? And so what if you know it? What are you gonna do Mm. about it? Empathy in action, compassion in action is unbelievably the greatest stress reducer I've ever seen that's overlooked. That's the child who says, I wanna do something about it. He's a little change maker. That's a child who says, I, I saw that man. Oh my gosh, Ned, I can't tell you how many kids I interviewed who were, I'm telling you the hope for the world. Little Ned, he was, uh, there was a little guy. Named I remember, Ned, yep. He's actually <laughs> nine. And he was sitting there watching a man who was homeless. He says to his mom, mom, can you stop the car? It's really raining. We got an extra overcoat. Can we just give it to the man? Bless the mother. Because she said, sure, sweetie pie, go give it to the man. Now he was safe. Mom got stopped the car, mm-hmm. but went out, gave it to the man. I said, what to do, Ned? He said, you can't believe it. This man, look in his eye. He started to get teary-eyed. I started to get teary-eyed. I ran back to the car. The entire drive home, he's staring at the rear view mirror. And he said, mom, 
Mm. I got to keep doing something more. By the following day, there wasn't an overcoat in the house left or in the neighborhood <laughs> because it started a brigade. Now, what happened is there's that multiplier effect. It's mm. empathy plus integrity because he's doing yeah. it together. He becomes a change maker or empathy plus curiosity. It's compassion and action. It doesn't have to be an overcoat. How about mm. the child who's concerned about the neighbor next door? The best way to teach empathy to a child to boost it is face-to-face. -face. That's where all the research, says Paul Slavic, motivates the child to say, I am a change maker. So what can we do about it? Well, how about we bake some cookies, mom? Good idea. And then what should we do? Well, we got a social distance, so we'll just drop the cookies maybe off at her doorstep. She's all by herself, mom. She's like about 80. When the look in that person's eye once again says, thank you, it you will make your child a whole different view. You act how you see yourself to be. And what happens with kids who are really empathetic is they build it from the inside out, but they've had the opportunity to do good and it changes their view of self. You know what's happening with us in burnout? Well, mm -hmm. as stress builds, you dial your empathy down and because you're in survival mode. The outcome right, right, is because right. you don't have the relationship, you don't have the face-to-face -face connection, there comes the burnout. So yeah, I know we have to be mm. healthy and happy. We have to be safe, but we can still help our kids make a difference by finding a way to give back as opposed to get. And that makes an enormous difference because it helps them think we, not me. Was well, interesting. There was a their friend Madeline Levine, who people may know as the author of *The Price of Privilege*, a brilliant book. Uh, she's on the West Coast and tends to work with a very sophisticated, very affluent clientele, and a lot of kids who just kind of feel, you know, she describes existentially impotent. And she said the one, then she's a therapist, right? She's done this work for decades, and she said the the single most helpful thing for her kids she was working with during the last, you know, year and a half of the pandemic was to have them go do something service yeah. oriented. Yeah. She said, she said nothing else that I did or said came anywhere close to that. Just reconnecting them with, you know, values I in the world. as we're sitting here, I I'm so in agreement. Of course, I'm always in agreement with Madeline Levine, but anything that, that we can do right now to, with this mental health crisis to help kids get out of their pain and suffering and recognize that others are feeling in a similar way. A group of kids from Glenbard, Ned, oh my gosh, mm. these kids were just glorious. What they were so worried about during COVID was that some of their friends they knew were depressed. They knew that they couldn't get the resource of face-to-face -face connection with the school counselor because the school doors were closed. I said, so what did you do? He said, well, we started to put together a text chain of who we were worried about most. And then we put together what we called COVID gift bags. We didn't, we didn't do it face-to-face, -face, Dr. Barba. We were all separate, but one kid would draw, <laughs> would write the note to the child one kid would draw the picture because he was good. The other kid would bake cookies. And then I would drive them by and do a driveway drop off at the, the end of the driveway to the kid we were worried about. I said, how did it work? He said, you won't believe what it did. Every single day, one of those kids called us sobbing because they didn't realize that anybody cared. And then every wow. single day when the kid would sob, we'd start sobbing. And because we knew we'd made a difference. And then every single day we had to do it again and again and again. It was the best thing that we ever did. Wow. We learned the power of giving back. That's a group of teens who took it upon themselves. Little change makers from driveway drop-offs. Oh, I love it. I love it. 
Yeah. And if I, if I can add to that, a point that I like so much in your book is, um, you know, as parents, the, what we say to kids makes such a difference, but also how we say it to them. Mm-hmm. And you talked about when praising um, sort of the grammatical power of grammar or the the, the, the <laughs> parenting effect of, of using nouns rather than verbs. Can you give an example of that? Yes. Explain yes. Why? I thought Thank- that was so thoughtful. I love that. When I was writing Thrivers, I must have combed 50,000 pieces of science because we deserve (laughs) only proven stuff at this point. And some of the simplest stuff we overlook. When we Number six, perseverance. Holy cow, that's a lot. (laughs) First of all, when we praise too often, we just Mm. praise, but good job. The more specific Mm. we can be in adding because to our praise, there's your, maybe your New Year's resolution. Every time you praise, you want to do something Mm -hmm. simple? Add the word because that was being kind because. But the second thing is, if we praise our kid, praise it so it's a noun, not a verb. Thank you for being such a helper as opposed to helping. And the reason for it is now the child interprets their identity as the noun. So they see themselves as the as whatever you've said to them. And as a result, they incorporate that image. What we're trying to do as parents, we don't realize how powerful we are, but we're darn right powerful, is in our day-to-day moments, what we're trying to do is help our kids develop a positive view of themselves and take in all the good specific stuff about themselves so they can use it without us to be able to make a difference in themselves or their world or just figure out who they are. And those little everyday moments of praise can make such a difference, Ned. Hmm. Nouns, the, not verbs. Uh, yep, yeah, I thought it was, I, what made me think about, there was research years ago, and I, I was Kentucky or some such thing, where they took a bunch of fifth grade students, and some yes. of them, uh, they give them white lab coats, right? And then, and then basically they thought, we are scientists, right? Yes. And, this, and then, and a similar experiment where they gave uh, a group of kids over the summer, one got a bunch of like, coloring books and stickers and activities. The other one's got a bunch of books and basically kept framing the language of, well, we're readers. Yes. We're readers rather than we, we read these books. We're readers. I mean, it's, 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 um, it's fascinating how those things can stick and, and change the arc of a kid's, you know, well, really they change their own lives because they, they have a different belief about themselves. You know, you, you mentioned something that's got my brain ticking and that is putting the lab coat on the child. Some of the best work in empathy was done at UCLA by a woman named Norma Feshback, who just has passed away recently, but she discovered the power of role taking that when we put on the lab coat and we act out the part we're far more hmm. likely to see ourselves or see the other person in that view. Theater, acting. Meryl um, hmm. Streep would say that Strep would say that that acting part has really increased her own empathy because she can act out from another view. You know, a teacher. I remember walking into. I've walked and observed just hundreds of classrooms, but sometimes you walk in and you go, "Whoa." There's a teacher, you know, high school teaching Romeo and Juliet. Okay, but what she does for and it was test day. Okay, all the kids have a test in front of them, but what she's doing is one by one she's calling each child up to the front, and each kid is doing one more thirty second view, and that is they're stepping on four construction paper shoes. 
in drum in a circle. Here's Romeo. That's one set of shoes. Here's Juliet. There's that set of relatives. Here's that set of relatives. What the teacher then says is step onto each shoe and tell me from their point of view where that character was, how they acted, and how you would mm. feel if you were that character. It was stretching the kid to such a higher level to dig deeper. I've seen the same thing with teachers um, doing Charlotte's Web with real shoes, with post-it notes on second graders of stepping into Wilbur, now stepping into Charlotte, and they step into the shoe, pretend you're that character. How would you feel? And I watched their entire body to change into sad or happy because they were taking on the point of the view. Now you're going, I got a teen. What do I do? A mother did the most brilliant thing. Her kid was so late coming home and there was the phone and she wasn't calling. There was the curfew. Every bad point of, oh my gosh, what happened to my daughter is going through her head. And of course, when the daughter came home, the 16 year old, what's the big deal, mom? I'm here. I'm fine. She said, okay, then do me a favor, sweetie pie. Sit in that chair. I've been sitting in it for two hours. It's a little warm. <laughs> you're sitting in that chair. Pretend it's me because that's where I've been sitting. Now just just do me a favor, sit in the chair. Now look at the clock. See the clock right there? Oh, look at the clock. Now keep looking at the window. Do you see the headlights of the daughter coming in? No. Now look at the phone. You see it's not ringing. Keep looking, keep looking, keep looking, and keep thinking, how would you feel if you were the mother? And all of a sudden she said it was the first time my daughter went, oh my gosh, mom, I never thought of it that way. I'm so sorry. I promise I'll call because she got it. Empathy is transformational. <laughs> I'll try that with my, no, my, <laughs> <laughs> let me, let me uh, ask you to tell the story about, um, is it Irina Sendler? Did I pronounce that correctly? Oh, Irina Sendler. The, Another, oh my, I, this is, I never, in my life, never heard the story. This was so. Well, whew. it is, the story is brilliant, but it's the teacher who's just as yeah. brilliant. The yeah. teacher, what, at the beginning of each chapter in Thrivers, I, I wanted to find a real school who was doing something simple, but off the wall in order to change kids and, and uh, have them understand the view. He's doing integrity. Now, Norm Kennard is a high school teacher in a homogeneous little place in, uh, in uh, Kansas. And he's convinced that the best way to teach character and empathy is through history. I agree with him. So he's got a couple of things. You may not be a history teacher, but here's what he does. He's collected a box that I think every parent and teacher should have. He's got a box for 25 years that he goes through newspapers. And every time he finds a real story about a real person who's just doing something good and glorious, he cuts it out and puts it in the box. Then every year, he always has his kids get into teams. Empathy is we, not me. So you work in a team of four and you're going to find one person who you think made a difference in the world. It doesn't have to be huge or big, but somebody who made a difference. And by the end of it, you're going to put together a little project or a play, and you're going to tell us why this person made a difference. Well, the four girls said, we've gone through everything there is, and we can't find anything. Then go to the box, says Mr. Kennard. The girls go to the box, and they find this one little USA Today article about a woman they said named Irina Sendler. It says here she lived in Warsaw, and it says here that she saved 2,500 kids. How could that be? Oscar Schindler got a movie after him and he only saved 1,500. This woman says 2,500. <laughs> Mr. You know, Kennard, she isn't even in Google. Well, here's the next thing this brilliant teacher said is don't rely on Google. Start making phone calls and dig deeper. And they did. They called Holocaust museums and they found that 
This woman named Irina Sendler did exist. Now, here's what she did. Number one, the girls discovered is that she disguised herself as a nurse. She's less than five feet high. And every day she'd go into a Warsaw ghetto carrying a suitcase and convince the Nazi guards that she had to walk in there to give those Jews over there typhus shots so that you Nazi guards won't get typhus. Oh yeah, go over there and get the typhus shots. Once hmm. she went in, what she did was to sit down with the parents and try to convince them to let her save the children. I promise you, I will put your child into a safe home. I'll bury your child's name in a glass jar under my tree. At the end of the war, I will do everything I can to reunite you, but please let me save your child. And one by one, she put each child, 2,500 of them, Ned, into oh a suitcase, gosh. a pipe, a coffin, one past Nazi guards, and saved 2,500 kids. Now, part two. At the point that this story came out, which is true, I interviewed the kids and I said, what was the defining moment? They said the defining moment was going and actually just finding a picture of the children she'd say, it changed our mm. life, Dr. Borba. Once we saw the image, that's called an elevating moment and that boosts empathy. Once we saw the image, we had to tell her story. So they put together a little play called Life in a Jar. They gave it to everybody. We have to show everybody in the community about this woman. We gave it at the Rotary Club. And you know what happened? One guy said, you, she really lives still today? Like, you know, 50 years later after the war? Yes, they discovered. We just discovered she does. Well, then you must fly to her and you must meet her. They gave them. Can you imagine? I just die with this. Wow. Story. They bought airline tickets for the four girls and the teacher. Flew them to meet Irina Sendler who says to the girls, you are my heroes, not me. I should have done more. The girl said it changed our life. And by the way, Google went up 50,000 levels and she was nominated for a Nobel Peace Prize because the wow. girls made her name there. Now, that's the kind of a story of a teacher who said, we got to help kids see the good people in the world. That's the best way that you can also teach number seven, which is optimism and hope. All our mm. children have been seeing is a daily death count, racism, a capital insurrections, absolutely horror. What child is going to see there's hope in the world unless you show them the hope? And so what you do, okay, parents, start cutting out good news, paste it on index cards, and every night go around the dinner table and say, did you hear about this kid? Now you go find a story. Or if you've got younger kids, it's a great review. Mm. Before you go to sleep, you're going to be thinking about the good news. And uh, George Gerber would say, no more mean world syndrome for children. You're now getting huh. a sense of hope and it opens up their ability to thrive. Just one more simple idea, stories well, about the good guys. Well, and I, what I love, you know, it's, I've heard that same point made not just about history, but about fiction generally, oh, because you put ourselves yes. in someone else's perspective. It also seems to me that it's a, yes. it's a powerful statement for the, for the value of art, right? Uh, you know, because in in you know bringing these stories forward, to your point, not just that, not just that, all the things that are terrible, but but the stories of people who, who well, make the best out of hard situations, right? Let's make this easy. One of the most wonderful studies. There are so many research that I go, oh my gosh, this is Raymond Marr up at UC, up at Toronto University. He said mm -hmm. it's bibliotherapy that changes our children's lives. You find the right books that are empathy based and driven. They don't have to be true nonfiction. They can be fiction, like all the light you cannot see, like Bel Canto. Mm -hmm. 
like outsiders. Every middle school kid, I said, I always ask kids, what's the one book that every teacher should always make sure that kids read? Outsiders. Why? That's 50 years old. Because it helps you understand what exclusion feels like. We need to know that stuff. Kids right now are saying it's the hate you give. Books where kids understand a different view. And if you're worried about your own empathy, start a adult book club of getting adult fiction. There's your own New Year's resolution. So we've just talked about a great ways for New Year's resolutions, not doing them all. But is it finding a good book club? Is it teaching and praising, not just one day, but at least 21 days, your children for a noun, not a verb, by walking around the house and saying, this month, my new my resolution is to look for the good and not the bad, just or the strength and not the weakness. Maybe it's starting a good news report and looking for the back page of the newspaper. And, you know, Fred Rogers would say, go for it, because that's what's going to help this pandemic generation realize we got it. Yeah, it makes me think of uh, one of my favorite quotes is the the great psychologist, William James, who observes oh, something, something effective. Our experience consists of that which we choose to attend to. And yes. so since we're since we're since we're he- here, uh, um, you brought us to uh, the chapter seven and the, the perfect place to, to to for any book or conversation to end about about optimism. I, I would love for you to share a, a point or two about, you know, what your research and, and well, all, all of these experiences have led you to kind of what, what's a, a, a tip or three for for families to cultivate more optimism in, you know, during a time when it's not it's not always easy <laughs> to feel. Yeah, well, optimistic. First of all realize it's not easy. You don't change and you don't set a new year's resolution unless you realize the why behind it. Our children Mm. have been seeing nothing but doom and gloom, but all of the research says elevating examples can reframe an image. So they see the world as a more hopeful place. What does that have to do with mental health? Well, they've now discovered that pessimism, we all have negative days, don't we? But if pessimism Mm -hmm. becomes permanent, pervasive, or personal, it robs optimism. And the more permanent, pervasive, and personal that pessimism becomes, the more likely your child will become depressed. That's why we've Mm -hmm. actually discovered the research. I I love this study, that if you can teach more optimistic thinking to a seven and eight-year-old, they're more likely to be stronger in terms of their mental health and less likely to be a depressed by the time they're a teen. How do you do it? First of all, when they're little, you can just set up worry catching. And that is start listening to your voice. And every time you hear a worry or you hear a bad negative thought, you say, stop it or cut it out or come up with a nickname. (laughs) That sounds so simple. But what they've actually discovered is that kids who come up with a nickname that call the worry or the pessimism, whatever it is, that's my, you know, that's my negative Nelly. One kid told me, really? Yeah, that's negative Nelly. I tell her to be quiet and I listen to something positive, but she does it over and over again. It never works once. Here's the other thing you can do. Kids, I, I, Ned, one of the most brilliant things, if I, I I was told was from uh, Navy SEALs. I worked on 18 army bases and uh, the commander said, you should listen to the Navy SEALs, the most elite forces in the world were retraining them. And Mm. if they can get through the most adverse times, I went up to them and said, okay, so what are you guys doing? They said, things that you should be teaching kids. The first thing we Mm. do is we come up with a positive phrase so that before we go into battle or adversity, we identify our stress signs, we tell ourselves, chill out or calm down, and then we come up with a positive phrase like, we got it, we'll get through it, 
It's going to be okay. Not all of those, but just one. Here's the power of a parent. The power of a parent is you come up with one, but don't just say it to yourself. Start saying it out loud to your kids and Hmm. say it like you're just saying it to yourself. After a while, what happens is they catch your voice and your voice becomes their inner voice. And that is so powerful. So there's so many simple little things you can do. The good news reports, putting them down. I, I end this, but just one thing that I, I remember uh, the stories of thrivers. Uh, you asked me why I wrote it. Yeah, Once yeah. I started interviewing people, they were so mind-bogglingly powerful. I couldn't sleep for a month. And then I couldn't sleep for two months and I couldn't sleep for a year until I got this done because they were so convincing that we can make a difference. I was interviewing a woman on, uh, on how uh, she, no, actually she was interviewing me about optimism. And I said, well, wait a minute, you're 80 years old. Didn't you live in England during the blitz? She said, yeah. I said, well, then let me interview you on how you got through the most (laughs) troubling times that you could possibly imagine. Living in the Blitz where every night you heard air raid sirens and bombings and aircraft and, and how'd you get through it? She actually was stumped and she said, I don't remember all of that. I said, what do you mean? You don't remember the air raid sirens and the bombings? She said, no, I remember the siren. And then I remember my parents saying, okay, black light time, blackout. They'd pull out, pull the drapes. And then what we'd do is we'd start singing. We'd start dancing. Mm. We'd start doing everything and anything that wasn't listening to it. And it blocked it out. She says, to this day, I remember just the happier moments of it. And Anna Freud went and did a a survey on which kids survived World War II. Same thing of Emmy Warner. She lived, Ned, in World War II in Germany. Hmm. She experienced all of that. And she said those who survived it had an optimistic outlook. And it was usually the parent or some other adult who just helped the child reframe the image. So they saw it in a more positive light and it lasted a lifetime. Hmm. I love the I uh, I stumbled on some months ago that a mantra of the Navy SEALs Yes. Is that calm is contagious. Yes. And so just like this survivor of the of the blitz, the feelings, the the energy, the optimism that her folks brought to it was contagious to her as well. That's so well, you also you also nailed something. We tell our kids to be calm, but the SEALs would say, You gotta be calm yourself so that the rest Mm. of your troops feel it. Because your sense of however you feel is mirrored back to your kids and our children have got to be able to see calmness or hope. And uh, that's what we do. Our, our whole parenting may be flipped right now into what our kids need to be able to get through it. And we will, but we've got to have a new attitude to help them thrive. I, I hope that you just take one strategy and make it into your new year's resolution that'll last not just a month, but keep on going because then you, when you see your kids doing it without you, add the next and the next, and that's how we gener- raise a generation of thrivers. Oh, I love it. I'm going to end with stealing your words that uh, um, from the very end of Thrivers that you stole from your under- other wonderful book, Unselfie, about the story of, uh, of Justin and Noah, uh, the boy who was struggling uh, in school, and his teacher had him, um, well, you told the story, uh, 
his teacher oh. had him tutoring a little boy, Noah, right? Yes, this child, the big guy, Justin, was really suffering. Uh, actually, he was bullying. He was aggressive. He was extremely negative, And the principal wanted him out. Teacher said, if we do that, we will lose this child. Well, what are you going to do, said the principal. Mm -hmm. She says, I'm going to bond with the kindergarten teacher. And we're going to do something that we haven't done in the past. We are assuming this child knows how to care. Let's not make any assumptions. So what she did is she paired him up with five-year-old Noah, who was precious as heck. But she oh also taught the big kid, Justin, every day. We're talking three minutes a day. What's one thing you can do to show Noah how to care. She taught him how to encourage, how to say good job, how to look eye to eye, all those things that sometimes we assume kids know. And then she'd have the child, big guy, go and pair up every day with, with Noah to help him. And then every day did one more thing. Ned, the most brilliant thing is after school or the following day, she'd have him chart what worked, what didn't work. She actually had the kindergarten teacher also take a few photographs of this, what seemed to work. Oh, when you were turning this way, when you were smiling this way, what happened is that both the teacher, the big teacher, the teacher of the kin the high school teacher mm. and the kindergarten teacher were teaching this child new behavior sets until around, I'll never forget it, around 21 days, which is about how long new behavior happens. The moment happened, I actually have a photograph of it that I show teachers where you saw two kids disengaged. All of a sudden, 21 days later, you saw a big kid with a little kid looking eye to eye, smiling, and you saw me become we, and you saw two happy campers. Uh, the teacher of the high school said, Justin changed. He never went back to his old ways. He, he went back to me and said, I, I never saw myself as a caring person. But my favorite part of the whole story is Noah went up to the kindergarten teacher and said, I knew he could do it. Sometimes it takes kids a long time. You should never give up on a kid, you know. He's a good guy. <laughs> That's the bottom line to it all. Empathy 101. Uh, I love that. And I, I mean, boy, from a wisdom for all of us from a five-year-old. I mean, so many parents right now are so worried because they have kids who are struggling um, in ways that they didn't before, ways that they worry about their future. And it, it just seems to me that all of our fears about our kids are, are really not about the now, but that they're going to somehow get stuck there. And, the, and this idea that, you know, that all of these traits, as you, as you make the case so well, are are teachable, they're learnable, and ultimately they, these get wired into kids' heads uh, and, and the, the brains that they carry into adulthood. And uh, yeah, you, you, so it, I, it just took them a while to figure it out. You don't give up on kids, you know, is a, it's a pretty good lesson for all of us to take into uh, 2022. Amen. <laughs> Isn't that it? That's it. <sighs> well, Michelle, I love I love your work. I love this book. I also, uh, I, for brag on you a, a little bit, uh, you just won a major award oh. for um, the teaching of character, a lifetime achievement award. Am I? Do I have that right? Yeah, it, absolutely the best honor I could be possibly given because it was named in uh, after a mentor of my own life, Sandy McDonald, who I think is the epitome of character. He passed away. Um, a number of years ago, but that award has been in his honor since. And to be given that, that award, I, I cried a week. <laughs> what an incredible human being. There's so many wonderful, wonderful people out there 
But I think we got to rise them up and say, that's yeah. the example we want our kids to copy. There's hope and yeah. there's where we go. And that's what's what our children are craving right now is that yeah. sense of hope and the good examples in the world. Yep. And that's our job as parents and teachers, just build more of those folks. So yep. we are not out of the woods yet with this COVID thing. Parenting has never been easy uh, and it certainly isn't easier right now. Um, but uh, I'm with uh, I'm with you, Michelle, that I have optimistic optimism about the future that uh, we can do well and more important, our kids can and will do well. So thank you for thank you for being with me. Oh, you are so welcome. It's always a pleasure. Thank you for listening to Prep Talks. Please subscribe to us for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time. Thank you.